Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode. Uh, before we begin, we want to put out a quick content warning on the topics we'll be discussing. Some of them are definitely triggering, and of course, it is all mature. So please keep that in mind as you enjoy today's episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Emotional Duct Tape. I'm Corey. And I'm Jamie. Jamie, we just we're we're in the midst of the holidays. How are you doing? Oh, I'm great. Um, I had a really amazing Christmas. It was really relaxing. Um, Eric and I spent some time with my family um, and just doing nothing, <laughs> um, which is rare. Um, and it was kind of nice to be forced to forced to not have a big celebration with lots of people and have to go to different houses and things like that. Um, because it really like gave us the opportunity to just veg and watch movies and eat and laugh and, and be together. And that's all I could have asked for. So <laughs> I'm, I'm doing well. Um, did you guys have a good holiday? Yes. Very similar to you. We, um, we had, uh, uh just an intimate little, little family, uh, Christmas. We actually did go see family, um, the week before the weekend before, which was nice because it gave us a chance to still not lose that family part of it. But also to come back and like do our own thing, you know, it was nice. It wasn't, I remember just in the morning, my wife and I were saying like, wow, this is so easy this year. Like we're, our, our, our meal was minimal. Like we made some fancy stuff, but we didn't do too much. And everything was kind of focused on our son and his Christmas and um, just really good. Uh, I, I think the only thing that I, I really am feeling right now is just more like, um, and you probably relate to this too with, with having family members who aren't here with us anymore. Like Christmas is a little sad, like a little sadder. My mom, my mom's, um, she passed away on new year's Eve. So, uh, then that's actually in two days from now. So it'll, 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 we'll, we'll kind of see what the day's like. I, I don't, I usually don't really get wrecked too bad, but if I do, I'm, I'm okay with it. So. Yeah. Good. I mean, I think that's a great way of approaching it, of being prepared for it. And, uh, I didn't know that, um, uh, but my, my mother passed in January. Um, so it's coming up for me too. <laughs> um, and so, you know, yeah, it's, it's definitely something that weighs on my mind. Um, I think, you know, now it's been almost six years. And, um, one of the things I've noticed is that like, I feel, I, I feel okay about it. It doesn't, you know, affect me as much. What I feel worse about is if I forget um and you know so that's something uh that you know i'm almost kind of glad you brought it up because now i won't forget <laughs> yeah i wasn't definitely. thinking about it <laughs> most definitely um but yeah uh today's episode's uh really special um because this is i, I say this a lot with this i'm gonna say this probably a lot of the time with our first guest but when we started this podcast and we talked about things we want to talk about. This is one of the first people I thought about um, bringing on the podcast. And I'm going to give some clarification and some some context first because this person is someone who I um, am very good friends with. And so I know in the real world, which we don't always have on the podcast. Um, and initially she said, like, let's do it after Christmas um, because, you know, the holidays are, are hard. Um, and then she said, I talked to my therapist and she said, we should do it before, how the, before during, or like during the holiday break. So, um, I want you to please help me welcome to the podcast, my dear friend, Natalie. Hi, Natalie. Hello. Yay. Thank you for having me. So, oh, yeah. Daddy. Yes. So Natalie is, um, I affectionately call her work bay. It's not weird if you make it, if you don't make it weird, but, um, <laughs> it's a little but, weird. <laughs> but well, it, it is a little weird, but we're kind of weird people. So, but she is a, a, she works with me in the office. We've been close friends for a while now, and she's going to talk about, um, some trauma, um, relating to her, to, to her family life. And it, it's going to be kind of hard, um, because it's, it's sad stuff. Um, not to put any expectation on her to deliver anything, but, um, you know, this, this is why we do this podcast. It's, it's about these situations. And, um, I think the real, the really big thing that we can talk about today too, is that with, with this kind of grief, um, it doesn't really necessarily ever get fully resolved, I would imagine, on some level. Natalie can probably speak more to this, but it's more about how can you take the days that are 
that are harder than others and try to cope and make them better. So Natalie, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop talking and I'm just going to let you, let, let's, let's, let's get some context into uh, your grief story. Oh, okay. Oh gosh. I'm a bit nervous. So you'll have to forgive me for that. <laughs> all good. All good. No worries. Um, so yes, Corey, you are correct in that this type of grief, it's something that um, I'll probably be dealing with the rest of my life. And it's really important to me. This is something I said, even when I started therapy with it is I wanted to help other people. So taking what happened to me and being able to share it with the world as much as I can, it's definitely been a process <laughs> to do that. Um, so I guess I'll just start with saying I do I do see a therapist. I did not start processing on my own. So for anyone who's listening, if this is something that you want to pursue, I highly recommend you find a therapist who is trained in trauma that has been extremely helpful to me. So very pro therapy, go team, love my therapist. She's great. <laughs> so yeah. I will start with that. Um, and, and love that you specified that you want to find somebody with a special, you know, with a specialty. Um, you know, I've definitely heard stories about, uh, you know, therapy gone bad. <laughs> I've had my own really bad experience and it was because I just didn't, I didn't know that there were different specialties, just like, you know, you're going to a doctor, you have stomach problems, maybe you should go to a stomach specialist, you know, and so um, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, um, Good bit. it's a, it's a simple thing, but it's not something that most people know about if they haven't, haven't, you know, tried therapy. It is. And it's one of those things that I like to warn people is that when, when you're not ready, you're just not ready. And that is totally okay. And I actually ghosted a therapist about two years before I started <laughs> with my current therapist. I just straight up ghosted them because they started heading in that direction. And I was like, absolutely not. Bye. And never right. called them again. And I feel so bad about that. But <laughs> Again, I just, I wasn't ready. I wasn't at that part in my life. So it does, it does work out eventually. But so if anyone uh, goes to your therapist, I, I understand. It's okay. <laughs> <You've done that. laughs> um, okay. So I guess just a bit of background so you can get some context on me. Um, I grew up in an abusive household. My mother was, she was pretty abusive, um, physical, emotional, sexual. I had kind of all of it. It started when I was about five. I think that's my earliest memory, at least. Um, maybe earlier, not 100% sure. And it continued. I lived in her house until I was 21. Uh, and then I moved in with my boyfriend, now husband. We were together eight years. I had some commitment issues. No surprise there. <laughs> um, so it, it was pretty much my entire life, different kinds of abuse. Um, so this was in, in 2016 was when I, we got married, my husband and I, and then I had a, a pretty bad episode and we didn't really know what it was like depression sort of thing. So I was like, I should probably see someone. And that's the therapist I ghosted because he started poking around. <laughs> um, so at that time I wasn't ready, but we knew something was kind of up and just kind of kept living and I was still in contact with my parents, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and then I hit 2018, it was in the fall and I, I got really sick. So I, I've been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and then a couple months later, major depressive disorder. Um, so it was right around November, 2018, I started, I had just really severe nightmares. It got to the point that I was only sleeping maybe four hours a night. I don't know if you remember this, Corey, cause we were at work. Um, it was right around the open rehearsal <laughs> actually is how I remember it. Cause I had open rehearsal the next day. Uh, and I, I hadn't slept at all. And I was so just like up and afraid. And I realize now it's hypervigilance from PTSD, uh, but when when you don't know what's happening, it's a terrifying experience to have it. And I had flashbacks and I was so on edge the whole time. And I remember going home and telling my husband, like, I think something's really wrong with me. Like, I think I need to talk to somebody. Um, so I went and I, I found my therapist and I was so afraid of doing it that I picked up the phone and like I called them and their secretary answered and I hung up on her because I was too afraid to set an appointment. 
So I'm glad that I'm glad that I did. I went through with it. I was like, no, I really like I got to do this. And um, so we talked kind of through everything. And I was in therapy maybe maybe a month when I made the decision to completely estrange from my family. So I basically told them, like, our relationship is unhealthy. I can't have a relationship with you anymore um, and cut it off. And it was looking back on it. I know that it was the right decision for me, but that's really when I guess I allowed myself to start processing. And I realized now if I hadn't had done that, I would have never been able to truly like process my grief at the level that I have been able to. So I don't regret the decision, but it, it was the hardest decision that I ever made ever is honestly, it was terrible, (laughs) like truly terrible. Well, I, that's a really good point too, because, um, you know, you're taught from a young age that your family is the most important thing in your life. You're taught that, you know, that you can only depend on your family when everything else falls apart, you know, and there, it's, just, it's this it's societal norm that we're taught that family is, is everything. And for you, I mean, to basically to acknowledge that the, the pain that your family was causing you was more significant than the security they gave you. Um, that's, that's gotta, that's, that's a really hard pill to swallow. Yeah, it is. And I think one of the hardest things, um, I don't know if other people have had this situation. I imagine so though, with my mother being the primary abuser, my, my parents were married. Um, my dad was, he was around, but he was very emotionally absent, I would say. And for the longest time when actually, when I cut, cut them off, I would say, I addressed it to my mom. It was specifically to her. I made no mention of my father or anything like that. I even told my therapist that I would still talk to my father if he wanted to talk to me. And he, he didn't, my father has never contacted me since then. Um, And that took, that took a long time for me to understand what was happening there with the family dynamic that he, he was never going to, to pick me or, see me as anything other than what she saw me as, which is basically like an object to control. That was very much her, her thing was controlling. Um, and it took part of processing your grief is it's not only that, like my mother who was very open and obviously abusive, but also my father who was kind of more behind the scenes as an enabler to abuse And that's something I had to really come to terms with. And it's something I still struggle with it. Now I'm two years out now and I'm still kind of like, oh, I don't know. But like, no, he is like, he's very much an enabler. He knew the abuse was happening and did not stop it. That sort of thing. Um, So that, that has gotten a bit better. I would say my grief with my siblings, I do have two siblings grew up in the same household I did. Um, very, if you looked at us from the outside, we were very normal nuclear family, I would say, like middle class, nothing nothing out of the ordinary. Um, my siblings both also have mental illness, which no surprise, grew up in the same house, so they would. <laughs> um, I, I have limited contact with one of them. They, I'm going to use they pronouns for both of them just to respect their privacy. Um, The one got married, you know, has a family now. We have limited contact, but I don't think our relationship will ever be anything more than superficial now because of what happened. And that one um, struggles more than the other one does. But the other one who is younger um, told me about, it was about a year after I had estranged from my family that I was an embarrassment and that our situation or my situation was too embarrassing for them. And I didn't know how horrible it was for them to have to like talk to people about it. I'm like, oh dear me. So I, I no longer have contact with that sibling and it it pains me. I wish it wasn't like that, but I, again, I took that one to therapy too. It took me a while to, to get the blame off of myself for that and understand that it's, it's not me who was the embarrassment in that situation. 
it's really interesting too to think about because um when you have families like where a parent is responsible for a lot of the trauma um there's interesting dynamic too because there are some some who can straight up acknowledge like yes my parent did me wrong in this way and some will automatically you know side like you know some people who are abused automatically side with with their abuser you know and it's it's interesting to see the the spread of how that goes with siblings too it is and i don't i don't blame my siblings for it i think that everybody especially when you grow up in trauma it's your own individual journey and they may never reach the place that i'm at and that just it's just reality that doesn't mean it's not sad or difficult but it's not something that i'm ever going to push them into if they're not at that point i guess so one question i i have um and i i don't want to talk about your your parent your mom too much or anything um but okay, that's I, okay <laughs> but, but so it's i'm sure your your therapist is even able to kind of pinpoint like the things that were wrong with your mom maybe mentally mentally because she is mentally ill unfortunately um it seems that way at least and uh, do we do you have any context into into her background like if if she had you know parents who were the same way towards her or if there was a situation that that created the monster so to speak yeah it's it's something that i don't have the the actual physical like diagnosis the hard diagnosis sort of thing but we've speculated on it a lot that it this is a generational trauma my grandmother, um, my mom's mom, I actually stopped talking to her when I turned 18. She, she's a not nice human. I will just say that. <laughs> um, I don't regret that decision at all. And I imagine that she was so horrible to me that there's no way she wasn't horrible to my mother as well growing up. And I imagine that my mother just repeated a lot of that. And it would be interesting um, there are times that my mother would have moments of clarity where she would say like, she didn't want to be like her mother, but then she would turn around and act exactly like her. Um, I think one of the biggest things for me was realizing that I was always going to come second. And that is what happened around my wedding. Corey knows I have some trauma that happened around my wedding unfortunately and not to worry to anyone who's listening my husband and i uh did plan we are gonna go renew our vows alone on a beach oh, that's awesome <laughs> by ourselves so we can just redo it and that's totally okay um but when i got married i we wanted a small wedding my husband comes from a small family he doesn't have extended family or anything like that and so i said why don't we just have a very tiny, like immediate family only? My wedding ended up only being about 50, 60 people. It was pretty small. Um, and I told my mother, like, I don't want grandma there. Like, we don't have a relationship. So keep in mind, I got married. I was, we were 25 and 26. I had not had a relationship with her since I was 18. And everything before then was forced family time. So no relationship. Um, and it came down to we were picking we were picking the date at our venue there were only two dates left one in april one in may and i was like okay well we're gonna think about it that sort of thing and i was sitting at work one day and my mom sent me a facebook message and it was like the the block of oh, text no. and you're just like oh no like this is not what you want to read and it was this big thing about what a selfish bitch I am. Now, that was one of her favorites was calling me a selfish bitch. She just loved that. Um, and that I had to pick the May date because the April date might conflict with my cousin's graduation. And if my and I took her family away from her and I was not going to take away my cousins from her as well. So keep in mind, this is in the context of picking a date for me to get married. <laughs> so that like, at the time I was, I was still really up in the brain when that happened. And I, it was like, I didn't understand what she was saying to me. And then later as I processed it in therapy, I was like, my fucking mom, I hope it's cool that I just dropped the F-bomb. Sorry about that. <laughs> like, no worries. <laughs> good. Uh, my fucking mom, like uh. who is supposed to be my family and celebrate this wedding day with me told me that I took her family away from her. Like, I'm your child. I am your family. And that was such, I went home and I just sobbed to my husband and, well, he wasn't my husband yet, my fiance. Um, 
And he, of course, was like, we could just elope. And I should have listened to him, man. Like, <laughs> always listen to your fiance when they say you should elope. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um, but it was just like, oh, she had this feeling that she was never going to choose me. And it it was like something suddenly clicked in my head. And that was what my whole upbringing was like. It was always her placating her mother. And everything was about making her mother happy and like satisfying that. And that's when I realized like the same thing happened to me. I, we repeated the whole cycle. I got to a point that, and I can talk about this a little more if you want, that part of how I coped with what was happening to me was just basically doing everything she said, being completely this perfect child, everything that she wanted in a daughter, that way there would never be any kind of like strife or uncomfortable behavior or anything. And it was, it was the exact same thing that she did with her mother to try to win approval. I did the same thing to try to win her approval. And it suddenly clicked in my head that this was never going to happen. And that has been a huge part of my grief. And it's something I do go back to now, especially around Christmas is just that feeling of, why wasn't I ever good enough? Like, why, why is she never going to love me? Like, why is it so hard? And um, Corey knows. So part of how I, I cope with things, I started getting tattoos. I actually have a trauma-informed tattoo artist who I work with, and she is Oh, fantastic. wow. Yes. I've never heard of that. Highly recommend. That's and so cool. I'm a big tattoo enthusiast covered in them. So um. love it. <laughs> She has, she has attended, they actually have trainings for this kind of stuff for tattoo artists for, and they work with things for survivors who might have difficulty being touched in certain places and like how they can tattoo them. I love that. So I have, I'll show you guys, I have worthy on this wrist and enough on this wrist and I'm going to, I have plans to get a back piece done in a couple months, I hope. So stay tuned, Corey. Yes. You won't see it. Uh, I want to know too. <laughs> yes, I would be happy to share it. Um, that is something that it really helped. I like to call them my permanent reminders to myself that I am worthy of love and I am enough just the way that I am. And I, I get down a lot, obviously having major depression. I go through the ups and downs of that, have little, little upticks of it, especially around Christmas. Um, but all I have to do is look at my beautiful tattoos and remind myself. And that is very helpful. So I highly recommend tattoos for anybody who's interested in trying those. Yeah. What's, what's amazing about you, uh, Natalie, and I say this because I know you, um, is that like, so I, I think once you, when you mentioned that first big episode, I think that was around the time you started working with me. Mm -hmm. like, it was, like it was a month after we started working together and became yep. friends. Um, around the, around the first time we had tacos together, I think actually. Yes. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so now, now I realize how significant the tacos were, I guess. Um, but yeah. So what's cool about you though, is that you've been taking steps to reclaim yourself, your life on your terms. So obviously you're going to be, you know, having this renewal ceremony, but um, yeah, let, let's talk about, how how you're processing your grief moving forward obviously therapy is a big big part of of how you're doing this but let's talk about what what you've been doing just to to move forward to be able to to find who you are as a person again aside from what what the programming was that your mom tried to put in your head so where do i want to start with this i think i'll i'll focus a lot on um the grief with that comes with the loss of like body safety is a good way to put that, it. That's a really good. Yeah. Please do. When, when you're abused, like obviously a lot of my abuse was physical and that kind of got trapped in my body. So I actually attend body work. At least I was before COVID. I'm not right now, but I'm hoping to start back once COVID ends. Um, so I, I've done a couple different types of body work. There are really great, again, trauma-informed yoga, massage. Um, we've done emotional release technique, and it is great. And I have to be honest, I was a complete skeptic at first. I was like, no, this is all pseudoscience. Like, what kind of weird, like, crystal chanting stuff is this? <laughs> That's not what it was like at all. I, I really love therapeutic body work. Um, we do a lot of exploration where... 
she'll ask me to kind of think of a memory and then feel where it is in my body. And then we just move my body around or she'll do like massage work to try to loosen me up, um, to try to basically get it out of my body. And it's amazing how that actually happens. Like (laughs) you get just touched in one little spot where that memory lives and it just shoots out of you. And for the longest time, when I first started body work, it was the first time I really let somebody touch me. I don't know, Corey, if you remember this, that I, I wouldn't let you hug me for a long time. Yep. I completely like totally shut off my body. Not that I was trying to hug you all the time. Or anything, like, <laughs> no, but I, me, I would be like, no, like I'm not, I'm not a hugger. Like you guys used to call me like an ice queen at work and stuff like that. Yep. You remember that. And that was because I was, I was suffering so badly with like my PTSD and the fear of people coming near my body and it's like one of those things that I know you wouldn't hurt me, obviously, but my brain doesn't know that. My brain just sees you as a danger. So that's what I did with body work is letting somebody come close to me. And it it was really hard. The first probably three months of sessions, I would have nightmares after sessions just from her like touching spots that like released things which was crazy. Um, and there were times that I was like, I'm going to kick you if you don't get away from me, lady, <laughs> Like, back it up. <laughs> so it was, it worked. I was in it probably a full year before I got really, really comfortable. And part of it too, is it is like traditional massage. So you're basically naked. Like now you're under blankets. Obviously it's all very safe, but that was a huge thing, especially since a lot of my trauma is, um, female to female sexual violence. It was like being naked in this room with another woman. I was like, uh, uh-uh. like this is not, not a good time. You're very vulnerable. I mean, it's a vulnerable position to be in, in the first place, mm-hmm. you know, let alone having gone through what you've gone through. So kudos to you that you kept going. <laughs> Thank you. I, I thought about going. quitting many times. <laughs> um, it was, it's really wonderful though. It's body work is great. I think if it's something that people are interested in, I would highly recommend looking into it. I, I really loved it. Um, on top of that, then I was looking for more, I guess, creative expression is a good way to put it. And I started uh, pole dancing. I took a like an intro level class. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, like it's pretty cool. I can vibe with this. Let's do it. Um, and then I just kept going. And now I have a pole in my house. I have a full studio set up. I compete and it's fantastic. Pole has been so good for kind of reclaiming my body. And some of it would be just the parts of my body that kind of got, I don't know how to say it, kind of got traumatized. Like my mother had this hatred for upper arms and I don't know why, like it's a very bizarre thing. Just hated them, said everyone had big fat upper arms. So I grew up believing that I had fat upper arms. And I mean, that was placed in my head when I was really young. I hated my upper arms so badly. And when she, you know, when she would get physical, a lot of the times that would be the first place she would grab is the upper arm. So I just kind of ignored them for a long time. And then through pole dancing, as my muscles grew, I started looking at my body completely differently. And I was like, these are like beautiful, beautiful upper arms. (laughs) There's, there's no bad upper arm here. (laughs) That's something that I loved so, so much about it, especially with, you know, being called, being called a slut like stop dressing like a slut, you're a whore, you're going to attract the wrong attention and like that kind of stuff. And it was so nice to be able to be openly, not openly sexual, but just kind of explore sexuality in that way and be like, no, I can, I can do this. I can dance more exotically on a pole. And that doesn't mean I'm a slut or a whore or that I'm attracting the wrong attention. It's, it's beautiful to express your sexuality like that. Absolutely. And it's strength and it's, Mm -hmm. it's mentally challenging and, you know, it's, it's so many layers um, rather than the superficial, oh, this is just for strippers and, you know, like, no, it's a workout. It's, you know, it's, it's a mental thing to continue to keep going and doing it. 
um, and, and, and absolutely the expression. Um, that's really awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Well, the, other yeah. side of it, the other side of it too is Natalie's not going to brag herself up, but I'm going to brag her up because Natalie competed, but she won and she won in her, in her circuit. It, she honestly, had, she, you're a true she athlete. A, she has a medal. So it is, it, what's cool though, is that it's taking this thing that you were told was wrong about you or you shouldn't do you're doing it, you're discovering like you're claiming back your body, but you're also gaining the respect of people, you know, in that world saying like, dude, you're a badass. Yeah, I mean, it's it's nice. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So that that's great. That's I think that's amazing. And I mean like and you put the work in too. I mean like that's um do do you find yourself that when when you feel lower, like like when you feel kind of dark in the dark the darker spots that you push yourself more on the pole? I do. It's, it's something that helps. They say, you'll hear people say like, oh, exercise is fantastic for depression. And now I'm not saying that is the only thing I I should put a disclaimer. I am on Lexapro, like Lexapro gang here for it. Love the stuff. (laughs) I would not be functioning without it. (laughs) Um, But exercise absolutely helps. I also practice yoga and I've incorporated that into my pole work, which obviously yoga, very helpful for pole dancing. And anytime I'm feeling, I'm sure Corey has probably seen it since I post videos on Instagram of me pulling. If I'm too depressed to kind of really get a workout in, I'll just wander in there like in my jammies and spin around a couple times. And that's like just enough of the serotonin boost to kind of keep going. And like, even if that's all I do and I just clamber back into bed afterwards, that's totally fine for me. It's enough. One question I have, obviously, you and Kyle, your husband. Can I say Kyle? Can I should I not say Kyle? I don't know. No, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, but your husband, um, who's awesome, he's such a great supporter of you. Um, so obviously, you were together for a long time, but with um, other relationships you may have had dating or otherwise, you know, did you find that um, those people just? I mean, obviously, you kind of were still figuring it out yourself. So I mean, um, you find Kyle, and he's. I don't, I mean, he probably wasn't aware of it. Like you weren't aware of it at first. And now that he's aware of what you're going through, I mean, is he like, like how, how is he supporting you? I guess. I mean, in the way that you need. My husband is the most supportive man on the planet. I, I wonder where he comes from sometimes. I'm like, (laughs) I don't know how I got so lucky to have a man as supportive as him. He's very engaged. Um, he has actually attended therapy with me. We've done couples therapy together. Um, some of that is, I'm sure people can figure it out, but when, when you're sexually abused, it does screw up sex a lot, <laughs> like a lot. So we have done sex therapy together. It's something we're actually still doing right now um, to kind of work through all of that. And like finding a man who'd be willing to basically be celibate because I was not able to have sex for a really, really long time. And he stuck by me through all of that. He never pressured me. Anything like that is just amazing. And I can't even tell you how many times I would like cry and be like, you're going to leave me because I can't have sex and I can't do my wifely duties and I'm a terrible human. And he's like, you know, I like you for more than sex. I was like, no, no, you don't. <laughs> like, What are you saying? Um, that took, that actually took a really, really long time to kind of build, build that trust there because it even happened with Kyle, like the man I married, I, I was so distrustful of absolutely everybody in my life that I wouldn't tell him things. I would take it to therapy and not tell him. And my therapist would be like, you really need to tell your husband that. I was like, no, I won't. (laughs) I won't do it. (laughs) So that has gotten a lot better. Um, Worked a lot on the communication aspect. I also try to give back to him in other ways that I can. Um, be emotionally nurturing, uh, give him his favorite candy when I'm after I've had a bad day, (laughs) that sort of thing, just so he knows that, like, I still love him, I still want to connect with him, even on my bad days. And honest, we're very honest with each other, I'll just straight up tell him like, hey, I just, I feel a little disconnected from you, can we spend some time connecting more intimately and emotionally? And that's like, 
you know, it's intimate connection without sex. And that can be done in so many different ways. There's, I will let you guys imagine. You don't need to visualize any of that. <laughs> um, but he's he's been really, really wonderful. Yeah. And the, yeah, kudos to Kyle. Kyle, if you're listening, he better be listening to this podcast. Kyle, you're awesome. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that, that's amazing. And to, to have somebody who recognizes that and is able to support you in that. Um, is really special. So um, you kind of talked about the holidays a little bit earlier, like how it's harder this time of year for you. Um, I, I know that for me, like for my own situation, which is a bit different than yours, um, it's just hard to, to process what you lost. Um, but what I think is really cool too, is that um, you just, you just bought a house. Mm-hmm. You, you and Kyle just bought a house. We just bought our first house. So so let's let's talk about um i mean something you know it's, it's kind of like a, an adulthood rite of passage whatever you want to call it um buying a house but for you this is there's a lot of significance just beyond you know adulting quote unquote um let, let's talk about kind of how that that plays into to you redefining your life again well yeah i've never had I mean, I've, even though I've lived in apartments, I've never had something that I've owned, my own home, where I have felt totally safe. And I don't have to walk on eggshells here. I don't have that fear. Uh, there's no no violence in my house, anything like that. And it's it was something that was so hard when we bought the house. I was so emotional. I just like cried <laughs> all the time. <laughs> it was just crazy. And uh, the house is we've had some struggles with the house. Uh, Like our roof just blew up. We've only lived here three months and our roof died. We had to get a new one. And then our furnace died and our electrical got messed up. So there, there was like a lot of not good feelings in the house. And I always say that I'm making like sacrificial offerings to it by giving it all this love. I'm like, no house, I'm going to love you. Like you may be a bit of a bit rough around the edges and have some electrical issues, but don't we all? I'm going to love you. <laughs> that's a great metaphor. <laughs> yes. So, and that's something that has helped so much, just being able to express myself in the house, to put us, our relationship, this healthy, beautiful thing in this house that is going to be healthy and beautiful is such a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful gift that I have. Okay, so this is a very bizarre anecdote. We were talking about just kind of the strange things that can heal you, especially with my house. So part of my trauma, my mother made me kill birds with her, like strangle them. I know it's a very, it's a very bizarre thing. Now I think Corey might know some of this because there are always pigeons like hitting our building downtown and it would be super upsetting. Yes, you, you remember? It would be so upsetting for me to see them on the ground dead and like... So I guess, okay, let me give a little context. Um, My parents put up purple martin houses. They're an endangered bird. So they would try to get them to nest every year to kind of repopulate and that sort of stuff. So my parents use that as a justification to kill the bad birds that might try to nest instead. So that was the justification. Keep in mind, we live in the, I grew up in the suburbs. Like this was not the farmland. (laughs) Like, there, there was no no justification. So my parents would trap them in these little trap things. And my mom would have me go out and like hold plastic bags and she would strangle them or gas them or something like that. So I, I was probably seven or eight when this was happening. And I would sit there holding the bag while the bird struggled to death. So that left me with a little bit of trauma, as you can imagine. So I have this absolutely beautiful bird feeder outside my window here in my office. And it's uh, my office goes down into a ravine. It's probably a 10 foot drop. And it's this huge thing that was built by the previous owner. And I have so many birds that come visit me every single day. And it is so healing to just open my window and I get the bougie bird seed, the very expensive fruit and nut mix. (laughs) And I feed them and I even have squirrels and I don't stop the squirrels either. Like (laughs) let them all eat for all I care. And it's so wonderful to have these snow white moments to have these birds come to me. And I'm like, I feel like I'm like redeeming something, even though I I was an accessory to bird murder and that breaks my heart. And now I'm like redeeming myself. 
I'm, I'm going to ask this question. I might not even keep it in, in the, in the, the taping, but um, I know I, and if you don't want to answer this question, don't answer it. But I know you and Kyle are, are a couple that, that don't want to have kids. Mm-hmm. Um, you've talked about this before you have, you have fur babies and just like Jamie does, Jamie has kitties too. Um, but my question to you is, is, is a factor in your choosing not to have kids because of what, what because, happened? Because of what happened? Because of the fear that you have about being a parent, maybe that that somehow that part of you that or some some something that happened to you is going to come back up somehow. Uh, yes, that is part of it. It's it's hard to say fully. I would say now this was never like a secret between my husband and I. We had both discussed before we got married whether we wanted kids. We both said no. Um, and then as I started processing trauma, I did realize that some of it is because of that, because I felt that the evil, or I describe it as the evil. Let me say, I'm not saying people with mental illness or abusers are inherently evil. That is not what I'm saying. Um, I felt that that evil that possessed my mother to abuse me would live inside me too, especially knowing that it's a generational trauma that it passed down. I'm like, it's gotta be in me. And even though I know, I know I wouldn't be like that. And it's one of those things that I know I'm the most gentle, I'm the gentle person. Like the thought of, the thought of like (laughs) abuse is is just horrible to me. Um, But it's not a risk that I'm willing to take, I guess. I feel like I have this opportunity to end the generational curse and I can, and I want to, I don't want other generations from my bloodline to suffer the way I have. And that is, that is a part of, it's something I actively grieve still now, the not having children, especially during Christmas. It's really hard watching my friends who have kids. They have all these wonderful Christmases with their kids and it's like uh, when your uterus is like, put a baby in me. <laughs> you know that feeling? Oh, girl. <laughs> yes. It's all day, every day. <laughs> it is so bad during Christmas. And, you know, I I had that. We have discussed it, my husband and I. We have always said that the biological is not important to us. Um, part of that is because now with having depression, which does have a hereditary component, I also have Crohn's disease, which is hereditary. I'm like, that's a lot of risk. And I don't want to take that risk either. So we've said, you know, if we wake up in 10 years and we change our minds, we are completely open to adoption or fostering. But I think, you know, for right now, as where I am in my life, it's not something I want to pursue. And I don't feel held back by it, I guess I should say. It's, I know that my trauma influences it, but that doesn't bother me, I guess. Right. And you can still be a whole family, you know, without children. <laughs> totally. Oh, yeah, for you know? sure. <laughs> I have cats and I love exactly. them. <laughs> me too. Me too. Yeah, so it's, I don't feel like I am losing anything either i think i will be just as happy no matter what decision we make i i think it was you i was messaging a while back about this too because i know for me like my mom um my mom wasn't on the level your mom was like my mom way different my mom's worst moments were probably on par with what you experienced every day um but for me like i I, I do definitely feel those days where, where I, I want to be like my mom and react and do things she did, you know, to, to, to bend my son to, to my will, you know, but, um, you know, I don't have, but I have, I, I he doesn't have it nearly as, ever as bad as I did. Um, I still have my days where it's really hard and where I have to actually actively make an effort. Um, but if you do decide to have kids one day, Natalie, that are your own biological children, there is no way, no better way to stick it to your mom than by raising <laughs> functioning, capable, you know, emotionally supported children. So just saying that. Mm-hmm. I've always heard that the best revenge is your life well lived. I I try to think of that. I'm not going to lie. I have revenge fantasies, just like many people who come from <laughs> trauma upbringings do. 
And uh, oh my gosh, my revenge fantasy is truly terrible. All I want to do is just drive by. We've talked about egging her house. Legal disclaimer, I am not going to egg her house. Let me make that clear. <laughs> yes, for legal purposes, this is a joke. Um, all I want to do is drive by and have her be like out in her yard or something and just scream, you know what you did, and then like drive away just to leave that impact. And the worst part is with my mother. So we we speculate that she has borderline personality disorder. Um, her main feature is uncontrollable rage, basically. <laughs> Um, and the, the inability to look inward, basically, to, to understand that she did have a part in this, that she was not just a victim, that sort of thing. She will never understand what she did to me. It doesn't, it doesn't matter to her. She doesn't believe she did anything wrong. So by me going and yelling, you know what you did? Like, it's not gonna, she's gonna be like, who the hell's that? Like, she would have no impact whatsoever. But for me, I would feel so much better. <laughs> we gotta make you a replica of her house, a little picture of her. And, uh, you know, see if that helps with some catharsis of just chucking eggs at it. I think breaking eggs in general would be a good cathartic ex exercise for many of us. <laughs> yes, you know, for people who struggle with anger, and that is something that when you're processing this, you go through a big period of anger. And I, I certainly did. Um, I went into kickboxing for a while. Yes. And it was, it was great. <laughs> Talk about processing anger. I just like, just imagine who I'm beating up here. It's a great, yeah, it really is a great release. <laughs> mm -hmm. There's a lot of things you can do if you don't want to do kickboxing, though. You can, like, fill your sink with ice and smash a hammer into it. And that's fantastic. It doesn't hurt anyone. You hopefully won't hurt yourself with ice shards <laughs> coming back at you. But Or you can do, I did one of those break rooms that you go in with the yes. bat and everything. Oh, it was fantastic. I recommend that wow. as well. <laughs> I'm really loving all of your alternative options and the fact that you're a success story where it's 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 both you know it's therapy and it's these interesting alternative things that some people may not even think about um that are really cool <laughs> yeah i'm i'm a big fan of i always say i'll try anything once sort of thing and that i think has helped me a lot on my journey just try all the things and you know some of them don't work out i have tried some things and i'm like this is Dumb. Like no, <laughs> like that's totally. Like you okay. tried it. You tried yes. it. Yes, and I. So anyone who's listening, just try all the things, and you'll find one. It'll stick eventually. It's, <laughs> but, it's cool. It's, it's like all your duct tape is different colors. Yes, right. I, I am made of multi. I'm like one of those duct tape prom dresses. <laughs> oh my god! Yes. <laughs> yes, it's very multicolored. I I highly recommend trying all the things. Um, some emotional things definitely nurture the emotions. Uh, so crying, kind of, Jamie, which <laughs> Corey was telling me all about your crying. <laughs> I hope that's okay. Yeah, uh, hey, I've, I have no, I mean, that's, you know, another reason why we're doing this because it's got to be out there. It's got to be said, you know, it's okay. And, you know, I've heard it said and I want to keep repeating it because I think I also need to remind myself that it's okay. Because I actually like, I have a, a very easy time releasing my emotions for other people and being empathetic, but I don't always process my own grief um, that way. And I don't always let myself cry because I'm like, I don't have time for this. You know, it's my own stuff and I'm fine and this is fine. No, you know, you don't have time to not release it. And, you know, you were mentioning um, earlier about like the body work that you did. And um, I started chiropractic some years ago, and I released a lot. And um, I was, you know, driving around, and I got like super suicidal, which is not me at all. And I was able to step back and go, "Oh, this is the trauma and things releasing from my body through the chiropractics." And this is not—I know that I'm not suicidal. It was just a thought that came up in my head. I was like, "I could drive off this road right now." Was I going to? No, you know, but, like, <laughs> but it's like, you know, I think the awareness of the releases, whether it's exercise, pole dancing, kickboxing, chiropractics, massage, yoga, you are releasing emotional, you know, things. And it's good to be aware that that can happen. So you can say, oh, where did this come from? I think it's probably coming from this. Let it happen. 
and know that it's going to be better on the other side. <laughs> yes. One of the things, just letting it, letting yourself experience. And I know how painful it is. I actually made it a goal in therapy to cry in therapy because I couldn't. I mean, I probably went a year and a half before I cried. And that was, we went through like narrative therapy. I told my story to her, all of the details. And I never once cried. And I was like, wow. mm, something wow. might not be quite right there. And it was because I was just, I wouldn't let myself do it. And once I learned how to finally cry and release that, it has so much better, greatly improved my just emotional coping skills, I would say. And it's something now that I just, I just cry when I need to, of like, Try to keep it appropriate. I was like, back in the day, I used to hide in the work bathroom, Corey, and I would cry in there because <laughs> I was I was a mess. Like, I can't recommend crying in your workplace. Don't do that. But <laughs> like, it's much better now. Um, and when you're talking about the things that can come up, they just come up. It is so important. That's something I wish somebody would have told me. When I when I first started going through everything, I had no expectation, like no idea what was happening to me. And that is part of why Christmas is so difficult. It was over our Christmas break. My work shuts down. So we were down for like 10 days. I had estranged from my parents on December 13th. So then we shut down work. I guess I remember the date. <laughs> um, we shut down work, I think, maybe December 21st that year. And then we were off for like 10 days and my husband was working that whole time. So he was gone at work. So I was left alone while I was having just huge issues with PTSD. And there was a time uh, I was sitting in my bathroom because I was having flashbacks and I was actually just starting to have flashbacks to sexual abuse. But at the time, the way it worked, it took me a very long time to fully remember everything. It was all kind of in pieces. So I would only get little flashes of it. And I, I do dissociate quite often. That's just part of my hallmark with PTSD. So I was dissociating and having episodes of like derealization. So things weren't feeling real around me anymore. So I would be on the bathroom floor holding my hands down on the tile because it was cold to try to ground myself back in. And it was, it was the same thing. I felt horribly suicidal. Like I was literally pacing my bathroom. Like I could just, I'm sorry, this is graphic. Like, I'm like, I could just slip my wrists right now and it would be fine. And I could make the flashbacks go away. And like, I, I started Googling things to the point that Google was like, do you need help? Like call suicide hotline, like that sort of stuff. And it was so distressing to me that I even got to that level that like, I had to grieve that for the longest point too. And to understand that what was happening to me, those thoughts, they aren't actually me. It's my mental illness that causes me to have those thoughts. And as I processed things, the, I guess the suicidal tendencies went down, they got better, they go away. Um, it is something I do still struggle with. I'll be honest around Christmas, they come back, but they're just something I cope with. Now they float. I let them float in and out of my head. Um, it's something, I don't know, for those listening who may have done therapy, it's called leaves on a stream. It's something I do with my therapist is you imagine your thoughts being placed on leaves and then they float down a stream. So that's what I always do when I have kind of those, the bad thoughts and the bad days. I just imagine putting them on my stream. They're just streaming out of my ear. <laughs> like It's totally okay. But that's something I wish people would have told me is that it's okay to feel like that, but you, you do need to tell somebody and like, don't be afraid to tell somebody either. I know that there's so much stigma around it and I'll be honest. Cause I didn't tell anyone either. <laughs> like during that, during that time, those 10 days we were off, I didn't answer my phone. I just slept, I think for probably about three days straight, just ignored everyone. Cause I was so distressed and shut down and I wish I would have told somebody sooner. And it got to the point that I did end up telling my therapist and it was like, you got to help me. <laughs> like, this is bad. <laughs> Something bad's going to happen. <laughs> um, and so I did get the help that I needed. So I would just like to encourage people that it's okay if you have those thoughts and you should tell somebody though, so you can get the help you need. They're not, those thoughts aren't you. They're just little thoughts that come up from your mental illness. And it's okay that that's happening. Just like it's okay to cry and it's okay to be angry and it's okay to feel all the nasty, messy emotions that you're going to feel. They are all ugly and it's okay. And they always pass. 
mm-hmm. you know, like they always pass. They come up and then, you know, and even an hour later, sometimes it's like, what was my problem? Yes. <laughs> like, I did I just need to eat something? Like, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I, you know, I like the concept of trying to redirect and, you know, putting your hands on the tile floor or trying to, you know, take a different path and, and get yourself out of it as best as you, as you can. But you're right. You don't have to do it alone. And, you know, there, there are people that will help and there's nothing wrong with it <laughs> yes. at all. It's, the only thing wrong is keeping it in. <laughs> yes. The only thing wrong, that is a great way to put it. Keeping it, don't keep it in. It's, that is not healthy or good. And I, I absolutely understand. I am the worst person to talk to about that. I am a little liar liar mcliar pants and people are like oh how are you i'm like i'm great <laughs> like never tell anybody my feelings but like i'm getting better at it it is something that comes with practice being open and honest about your feelings and some of that too does come from my upbringing and not being allowed to have emotions and there there were times we would be you know very typical parent thing like stop that crying or I'm going to give you something to cry about like that sort of stuff. I'm like, I hate that. And like ridiculous that people say that. Um, <laughs> but it would be sort of the same thing. We would express emotions as kids and my mom would say like, get that, that look off your face. I'm tired of looking at your face like that, like that kind of stuff. And it, it repeated enough that it taught me not to ever have emotions, just to always be in this state of perfect happiness at all times. And that was that was so difficult. And, you know, I had, what, 25 years of that that I had to undo in therapy. So it is a long, a long process, but you do get there. And emotions are wonderful, even when we don't think they are. <laughs> so, yeah, so one thing we always, um, we, it's kind of our, it's, our, our sign off, our mantra, if you will, but we say grief is like grief is finish the sentence. So how would you say, how would you respond to that? Grief is grief is healing. It wasn't until I started truly grieving all of my losses that I was able to find healing and kind of rebuild. I made Jamie cry. Yes. You're tall. You're tall. You're doing a three point shot at the buzzer over here. <laughs> right. Yeah. But that's yeah. Cool. That's it, it's, it's true. <laughs> it, well, it's, it's amazing because I, I, I know you and I'm privileged to know you and like talk to you every day, even if we're just responding to each other's Instagram goofiness, but um, like, I just have so much more respect for you and I'm like so proud of you. And I'm giving you a hug when I see you just because I, because I miss you, but also because like, you're just, you're this, you're this perfect example of, of what, of, of, of how you take this, take the crap that you were given. And like you really are. And you, what's cool though, too, is that um, you're not afraid to exhaust any, any, any place to make yourself feel better. You're not, I mean, even though you ghosted a therapist, you're not like, I'm never going to do therapy. No, you, you, you're, you're seeking professional help. You're finding ways to give yourself, um, give yourself Natalie back, you know, to yourself. Um, You know, that's, pole dancing that's tattoos that's body work that's buying a friggin' house yeah i mean so there's there's a lot of special stuff and you are a a survivor and and an overcomer in the best sense of the word so Mm, thank you i like to think of it as nurturing myself in a way that i didn't get and there are days that it's it's extremely difficult i wish i had a different circumstance but this one is pretty great too so we're gonna make the best of it you're doing amazing and like you're very inspirational i really appreciate your candidness and i knew um and we can take this out uh if if we have to but i knew the second you said that you were nervous pooping um we were going to be friends (laughs) (laughs) okay good i love a fellow nervous pooper (laughs) yes and just the fact that like you were open enough to say that to me we don't know each Mm -hmm. other but now we do you know and it's like i that's honestly to me like to be that open and honest, like you're going to get that back from people, you know, a lot of, I think abuse and things 
come from people's insecurities. And if we just let them all out there and realize you nervous poop, I nervous poop, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever, um, we all kind of realize like there's nothing to be insecure about. We're all humans and we all do these things, you know, and the more that we can be open with people, the more um, we can all heal. So Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> really. Well, thank and thank you for having me on. This was I feel much less nervous now. So that's where ending. <laughs> so thank you. That's great. <laughs> um, thank you everyone for being here for today's episode of Emotional Duct Tape. Um, we hope the holidays treat you well and we will talk to you later. <laughs>